Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Literary Cleveland, where writers can explore other voices and discover their own. Register for classes and find your writing community at litcleveland.org. And we are brought to you in part by The Bookshop in Lakewood, Ohio, a family-owned and operated bookstore committed to providing new and used titles in-house and online. Come visit a mom-and-pop bookshop on Cleveland's west side. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Welcome to Wild Precious Life, a podcast about dreaming big and making real connections. In each episode, I talk to prize-winning writers, musicians, and entrepreneurs who teach all of us how to make the most of the time we have. I've been thinking lately about the way our experiences change us. You go to school and think of yourself as educated. You travel across the country, and now you are an explorer, someone who's not afraid to venture into the unknown. Experiences can broaden our sense of who we are and what we are capable of. However, along those same lines, especially as we get older, a lot of us narrow our experiences. I am a person who goes to the library. I am not a person who goes dancing. It's good to know ourselves and what we like. But I think too many of us shrink what is possible. We decide, I don't hike or kayak or attend the opera or watch monster truck rallies or kiss my husband in the rain. And so we get stuck in our thinking, in our living, and in our belief about ourselves and what is possible. But it doesn't have to be like that. My guest today also found herself stuck. Elise Goldbach was a part-time seasonal house painter. She had no health care. She felt lost. Then she applied for a job as a steelworker and spent three years stirring molten metal, driving a forklift, and galvanizing steel. She did something completely outside of her comfort zone, and it changed her. It forged her as a writer, and it made her brave. When we take risks, jump into cold water, or pursue experiences that seem outside of ourselves, we can be changed too. Sometimes in ways that are difficult, but often in ways that surprise and delight us. I hope you will find inspiration and maybe even a challenge to yourself in today's conversation. Let's get started. My guest today is Elise Goldbach, the author of the 2020 book, Rust, a memoir of steel and grit. Elise received a degree in nonfiction from the Northeast Ohio Master of Fine Arts program, and her writing has appeared in Alaska Quarterly, Western Humanities Review, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and Best American Essays. Elise received the Plowshares Emerging Writers Award and a Walter Rumsey Marvin Grant, which is given to a young Ohio writer of promise. She lives in Cleveland, Ohio. Elise Goldbach, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you for having me. I read your book, which is entitled Rust, and I want to talk about being a steelworker, how to make steel for any of our listeners at home who maybe don't know how to do that. And I want to fangirl a little bit and just talk about how you're basically my new favorite badass. And I think we also should talk about like the healthcare trifecta, but like mental health and physical health and spiritual health. But before we get into all that, I'm going to ask you my new and favorite question lately, which is just um, make it meandering or make it bullet points. But what is your heart story? 
Yeah, so I was born and raised here in Cleveland, Ohio, lifelong Clevelander. You know, I just had like kind of a, a very strange upbringing, um, you know, with really loving parents and a very Christian conservative household, you know, kind of had like um, an array of kind of experiences that eventually brought me to work in a steel mill in Cleveland. And that kind of prompted writing this book about my experiences and, and kind of the things, the past that led me to to find myself in, in the world of steel making and big industry. When I was reading a little bit about your childhood, I felt like I was reading it with a little bit of a mirror. I was also raised here in Cleveland, Ohio. I was also raised in a Catholic household. And a lot of what you were taught at home resonated with me. I recognized it as, as a truth of my childhood. As a, go- as a girl, I was, I was taught to be good and um, kind and full of grace. Though I, I'm going to be honest, I don't think I ever knew what full of grace meant. I learned the prayer. I, I knew what it was not supposed to be. Full of grace meant you weren't supposed to be outrageous or necessarily ambitious. And you probably weren't supposed to get a job in a steel plant. You know, that didn't mean... So, <laughs> I'm, I don't know. Was that your experience too? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely was nothing I ever expected for myself kind of growing up. Yeah, and I was taught, you know, to kind of yeah, be demure and, and good and, and always get good grades, always you know, do well in school and things like that. And, you know, I had this kind of goal of wanting to become a nun because, you know, nuns are like rock stars to to kind of young Catholic children and wanted to be a saint or a martyr. (laughs) And, and, you know, because I think I loved like the magical world of like the Catholic church and all these miracles and things like that and the ritual. And, you know, that was just such an important and huge part of my upbringing that I, I really kind of latched onto that during my, you know, formative years. Yeah. I love the idea of thinking about religion as a child and belief as a child as being full of magic and miracles. I do think that when you talk to young children about God, there is a lot of magic there. Why did you want to be a nun? I think because I, I always want to be like special. And so, of course, you know, that's most people get married and have families. Not everyone becomes a nun. So I think that that was definitely part of it. I also, I you know, I just... I felt very like a, a strong like spiritual connection to to whatever is out there and, and I wanted to, you know, help people and, and do kind of those classic nun things. But I also wanted to be like on the cover of Time magazine, like, you know, Mother Teresa kind of so like a, a weird mixture of fame and helping people. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I, you know, I actually think you've you've written a pretty amazing book and I found it helpful. So while maybe I mean there's still time. You could change your mind and be a nun. But I think that the behind that, the idea of being special and important and loving and, and being loved, I felt a lot of that in this book. And so you were raised, you were raised in a Catholic household. Did you go to Catholic schools? How were your experiences there? Yeah, definitely um, went through like Catholic K through 12 school. And, you know, those experiences were, were pretty good, especially my high school experience. I had a, a, an all-girls Catholic high school that was, you know, made a lot of great friendships and things like that. And then I eventually went to, like, like study at a cat, very Catholic university as well. So kind of like very, very Catholic educational path. You talk about in the book, though, that you didn't, you didn't stay there for your full time. You ended up transferring. Did you transfer out for some of the reasons we're talking about with, you know, faith shifts and becomes different? Or did you have other reasons there? Yeah, I think that was the majority of it that you kind of start to see maybe the flaws in the religion, like in the way kind of people interpret things. I I started to realize that too, that like 
some of the people around me were maybe like not as Christ-like as they wanted to portray themselves and things like that. And so I think I got it like disillusioned. Yeah, kind of a lot of different factors kind of going into that decision and and went to a more liberal um, college where I got my degree that kind of, yeah, was really, really important to me and, and helped kind of form me as well. Show me like kind of a different side of things. Do you miss the faith or how has it changed in your adult life? You know, do you, are you still Catholic? Yeah, I would still consider myself Catholic, <laughs> um, you know, and I still go to church here and there and kind of pray and, and practice some sort of spirituality just because I think that that's like a need that I have like as a person. But like I'm much less like dogmatic in my thinking. Like I don't, you know, believe in the same way that I, I did as a child. Like, you know, I think that there are many paths towards the same end goal. I think that, you know, for, for some reason, Catholicism speaks to me most. Um, but I think that, you know, being Buddhist or Muslim or, you know, anything else can, can also kind of lead us to, to those same truths and, and that same kind of enlightenment or, or whatnot. Yeah. I know we're not supposed to judge a book by a cover, but I think it's important. I know this is podcast and people can't see it, but I'm going to describe what's on the cover. Actually, will, do you mind, will you describe what's on the cover? Elise, what are we looking at on the cover of your book? So yeah, so that is um, a depiction of a, a steel mill with kind of the smokestacks coming up, um, the, the steam, just this expansive world where where steel is made and kind of a big sky above it. <laughs> so for people who live here in Cleveland, like we do, this is a very familiar sight. When you're driving into our downtown, on the one side of the highway, you'll see the city skyline. And on the other side of the highway, you will see fluffs of smoke, you'll see fire, you'll see smokestacks and and you see this enormous enormous mill and when i when i was reading your book i felt very small and also surprised by how big this thing that i grew up seeing was so i i think i mentioned this when you and i talked earlier but you wrote that the steel mill spanned 950 acres and i had trouble wrapping my head around like acreage i'm like how big is that like, what are big things? Like, a football field turns out to be an acre and a half or an acre and a third. So you're talking about 1,200 football fields worth of steel mill. Uh, just absolutely enormous. And that a job at a steel mill isn't one job. It's many, many jobs. So take us through, take us through what made you think to yourself, oh, I shall apply for a job at a steel mill. Like, what, what, what made you think you could do that? Yeah, so it was um, completely just practical. <laughs> um, I had gone to college, gotten, you know, degrees, like, did everything I was supposed to do to get, like, the good-paying job, right? I graduated in the Great Recession. Nothing was really open. Couldn't find a job. Like, kept getting the thing where they say, like, oh, you're, you know, over-educated or over-qualified or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever. And so I was painting houses to kind of like make ends meet, but there was no health insurance. It was very seasonal work. And I happened to have a friend who worked at the steel mill and, you know, he was like, you should really apply. It's a great job. Um, and I was like, no way, I'm not, I'm not a steel worker. But like the more he talked about kind of the benefits of the union and the benefits of the job, I was just like, well, <laughs> you know, why not just throw my, my hat in the ring? So, so and the rest is kind of, yeah, history. <laughs> I'm just, I'm blown away. In case we have just one or two listeners who don't know how to make steel. I'm just assuming there might be one or two. Can you tell me a couple of things? Like what the sensory image of the steel mill, like what did it feel like and sound like and smell like in there? And then, you know, what is it people do? 
Yeah. I mean, because it's so huge. There's so many like different levels of it. There are places where they're actually like making like iron from iron ore. So like making like molten iron and like the, you know, it'll like flow in these kind of like rivers of, of molten lava on the ground. There are places where they take that iron and, and actually turn it into the steel. And, you know, people are doing all different kinds of jobs. There are crane men who are like pouring the vats of molten metal into the furnaces. There are, um, at one point I like drove a tow motor around like a forklift and just like replenished all of these like materials that are used in the process. You know, like when you get kind of past that like steel making phase, there are like rolling mills, which kind of like perfect the steel and like elongate it and turn it into these like long thin sheets. So like there are just jobs like kind of controlling that machinery that does those jobs. Lots of cranes everywhere. Um, and then, you know, there are like the finishing departments where they like galvanize the steel and and kind of ship it off to com- customers. Um, I worked briefly there as well, kind of packaging the steel and, and things like that. So there's like a wide array of, of things that you can do. Did you have a favorite job, something that you liked or a least favorite job, something that was not your favorite? I would say my favorite job was working in a place called the Timber Mill, which was um, one of these places where they kind of elongate the steel and like perfect it. And it was just like a good group of people. Like we would do crossword puzzles and joke around and it was just like a fun atmosphere. My least favorite job is I did run a crane at, at one point and that was very terrifying because like you can hurt people, you know, if you're not careful. So it was just a lot of stress. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did you ever just stop and look around and think to yourself, what am I doing here? Oh, absolutely. Especially like in the first few weeks, I was like not prepared for what steelmaking was, I think. And then there would be times like, especially when I was working the night shift and you would go like walk outside the steel mill that kind of appeared like really quiet. You could see like the flames off in the distance from like the blast furnace. And it was just like a really like peaceful place and kind of this cool place where people don't normally get to walk, you know? So that was also really cool. How long were you at the steel mill? I was there for three years. When you look back on this time, what is your overarching feeling? A little bit of nostalgia right now. I, I, like there are times when I'm like, man, I wish, I still wish that I could go back and just, you know, drive a forklift around all day. And, you know, so overwhelmingly positive and, and you know, just miss the, the camaraderie with people sometimes. And yeah. Is that how you felt while you were doing it? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It was always like a love-hate relationship with the mill. Because when you are a steelworker, you're usually working like crazy long hours. Like, I mean, people work 90 hours a week. And so like you're you're there all the time. And, and sometimes it's easy to get sick of it and, and you know, and want to be doing something different. So like there were times when I would just be like, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. And then there were times when I was, you know, just kind of in love with the place and, and exploring it. I heard confidence described as you did something difficult and you didn't die. Or you did something scary and you didn't die. You did this hard thing and you're okay. That sometimes the confidence to do one thing like drive a crane or stand next to molten iron, it does translate into the confidence to do something else, like write a book. You wouldn't necessarily think those two things are related, but they are. Something else that I thought was really courageous in your book wasn't just talking about this career pivot, but it was also writing really candidly candidly about mental illness. First off, thank you for writing about that. For many of us, for most of us growing up in Catholic homes, our parents loved us and cared for us, but I wouldn't say they led us through 
Let's talk about our mental health challenges right now. Let's all sit down and really be vulnerable together. That just wasn't, was not language our parents would have had. So I'm wondering, where did you learn to be so honest about mental health issues? Yeah, actually, I don't know. I think some of it actually has been in the writing of it. I think I use writing not just kind of as a creative expression, but also to to process my own thinking about mental illness or the state of my mind at a, a certain kind of moment. And every time that I write something down and I'm not like completely honest about it, about something, um, especially the mental illness, like I'll read it and I'll be like, oh, that's, you're lying. You know, <laughs> you have to kind of get down to that core truth. So I think that a lot of just, just doing the writing has, has made me honest like that. And I also, I just think it's important because so many people are you know, there's so much stigma around mental illness. And I guess maybe I sometimes don't care what other people think or whatever. Yeah. Probably a good prerequisite for being a writer. In the book, for those who haven't read it yet, you talk about being diagnosed with something called mixed state bipolar disorder. And at one point you do check yourself into a hospital. You say, I need help. And then you go and and you get it. I guess first I'd like to know is how are you doing now? Pretty well. Yeah, no, um, things have been really stable for the past several years, I would say. You know, I found like a good psychiatric team and things like that. Um, so that's been helpful. Um, you know, I think that the pandemic was hard on all of us. I, I definitely noticed my own anxiety kind of ratcheting up during the past year, but nothing kind of out of control or out of super out of the ordinary. Just I think we're all tired <laughs> right now. Yeah, I wouldn't give I wouldn't give the last year and a half five stars for anybody's mental health. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading. What has it been like since the book came out to have to talk, like, again and again about mental health struggles? Has it been empowering and, and part of your healing journey, or has it been, like, dragging you into a time that you don't want to go back to? No, I would say overall it's more healing than anything, especially like talking to people who see themselves reflected in, in what I've written and and or see a family member reflected and, and maybe have a better understanding of what that person's going through. And yeah, I think that, that the more we talk about it, the more we kind of understand it. Like you were saying, like I think stories are important in that way. So, so yeah, I would say definitely positive in, in talking about it. I think that one of my favorite features of books has always been the feeling that I can get when a character whispers in my ear and says, you're not alone. You know, when even as a child, as a, as a reader, when I'm reading Little Women and I'm, I'm seeing Joe up in her attic scribbling away, I'm realizing that I am not alone. There are other people who want the same things I want, struggle with the same things I struggle with. And again and again, I thought that the solidarity in this book, I didn't go to a book about being a seal worker thinking I would find myself there. But again and again, I did. And I was so grateful for that. On another episode of this podcast, I got a chance to talk to another writer, 
Boonmi Ladatin, who who had this to say about mental illness. She said, struggling with mental illness doesn't mean you're weak or broken. You walk through life carrying weights most can't even imagine. You're a beast. You're a champion, even on your worst days. And I'm proud of you for showing up. And I felt like that in this book, that I was proud of you for showing up, and I was proud of you for writing what you wrote. And I was proud of you for writing a family that's so familiar to me and showing me that, look, we go to the doctor when we struggle with a physical ailment, and we go to the the doctor when we struggle with a mental ailment, and those are so much more alike than we were raised to believe. So thank you. Thank you for what you wrote. And truthfully, I I mean, I, I saw real, real parallels. You were brave enough to talk about mental illness, and you were also brave enough to talk about college campuses and how they are not always safe place for women. I mean, I know that that the estimates of, of one in five women who are sexually assaulted between the ages of 18 and 24, that whenever you're in a room full of women, that other people in that room have also been on the receiving end of violent sexual contact and, and that you were brave enough in your, in your book to write about that. When I read about your story in college, um, I was broken inside for you, one, because you were putting it on paper, and two, because... I know the number of women in my life who that exact same thing or a version of it happened to. So for for the one in five listeners right now who are listening, who've been through that, can you tell us some part of what happened and how you made it through that time? Sometimes I still don't know how I made it through that time. Um, You know, I was a freshman at a very conservative campus and was assaulted by two men, one of whom was supposedly studying to be a priest. And so obviously, like, in this kind of conservative environment, those men's word was, was taken over my word. Um, and, you know, ultimately, they they weren't really punished or reprimanded. And I was kind of, you know, a pariah on campus for kind of bringing attention to the matter. And, you know, I mean, luckily, I had the support of my family, which I think was really um you know, helpful during that time. They they were able to kind of get me into some mental health services, you know, and, and talk with therapists that, that kind of helped me process what had happened and, you know, helped me realize that it wasn't my fault and, you know, that type of thing. I've, I've actually found a lot of, I don't, it's probably one of the hardest things that I write about that event, but I do find that like writing about it has given me like a sense of like kind of power and, and just kind of, you know, being able to to take control over it in some way. And, you know, I, I later, years later, found out that this same thing had happened to many and many other women on the same campus. Um, and that there was actually like priests on campus who were covering this up, you know, one of whom told me that I, you know, needed to pray to the Virgin Mary to be a better person. Um, you know, so, so like, had a, I think that at that time I, I wanted to know those other stories, you know, I wanted to know that I wasn't alone. And so like, if my story can kind of help those other women know that, that know that this isn't, you know, it isn't just you, um, that, that, that it's not good that that happened, but, but maybe something good could come of it. Yeah. Well, I was grateful that you were brave enough to tell that story. And I again and again came to this idea of the voicelessness that you spoke and were not heard. You said, this pain, this this harm, this danger happened to me. And I think of any of us, when, when someone comes to us and said, I am hurting, our job is to say, oh my God, I am so sorry, how can I help? And when you went to people on that campus, that's not what you experienced. 
You said, I am hurting, and people said, well, it's probably your fault. You said, I've been hurt, and people said, I don't think that's what happened. And so the voicelessness that you describe made me ache inside for, again, for women I know for whom this is a very, very real narrative. But then I also saw it in the cover, between the covers of this book, this book that I heard on the radio, this book that I saw on television, that even amid a pandemic, this story of yours is traveling the world. And so I was struck by the profound strength and power of you as a writer, that you can't be silenced, that the story will out, the truth will out. And you did that. I was just really proud of you and thankful that you did that hard thing. And I just was thinking about metaphors of steel and grit, <laughs> that that the same, you, you take something that you don't think could be stronger and it becomes stronger. You take something that you that's dangerous and it becomes powerful, that in the same way that steel was made, I felt like you were forged between the covers of this book, that, that you became powerful in my eyes, that women who tell the truth became powerful in my eyes. And I didn't expect to find all of that here. Thank you. I'm fangirling, but thank you. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Being raised specifically in Cleveland, I am born and raised here. You're born and raised here. We're proud of this area, but sometimes it can be hard to convince people of the triumph of this place. You write in the book, like a lot of kids who grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, I mostly wanted to leave. <laughs> in high school, I often talked with my friends about our plans of future escape. We would travel far and wide to give ourselves culture. We would attend colleges in legitimate cities like San Francisco or Boston. The real world happened in other cities and other towns, and we wanted to build our lives somewhere, anywhere but here. I totally understand that, and I'm wondering, do you still feel that way? For the longest time, I did. And, you know, I would be jealous of friends from high school who did kind of move on and, and move to other areas of the country and and felt like I was, like, somehow missing out on, on something that I couldn't really describe or put my finger on. But I think at this point, I've really come to just appreciate Cleveland and, and you know, just kind of fall in love with it all over again. And I, so I don't think that I will ever leave the, the kind of greater Cleveland area. I love that, like, kind of dogged spirit and that, like, just... Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly. I married a military guy, and I always describe it, because we've lived all over the country, and I always describe Cleveland in comparison to what it was like to live in other places, about, like, going to a hardware store and trying to buy, in this instance, a rake, because I don't usually move tools, all you know, so a rake, I've had to buy a rake in many places. So when I lived in New England, and I went to the hardware store, and I said, excuse me, do you guys have any rakes? The response was like, well, did you look? Did you look? Did you go and look for the rakes? Because if they're there, they're there. And if they're not, they're not. And so, and, and that was what it was like in New England. And then I lived in California. And if you went to buy a rake, they're like, why would you need a rake? It's beautiful here. We don't need a rake. And I lived in Seattle. And they're like, it's raining. <laughs> you can't rake. I, I've lived all over the place. But in, in Cleveland, if you go to buy a rake and you ask them, they will hold your hand. They will take you to the aisle they will tell you about the rakes. And if for some reason they don't have one, they'll be like, listen, I am so sorry. We are out of them, but tell me your address and I get off at five and my cousin and I will come and we will rake your lawn for you. Like, they, like the, Cleveland is this magnanimous, delusional place. We root for sports teams that, that generally do not win. 
But every year we're like, this is the year that it is this dogged, gritty, amazing place. I'm like you. I'm not sure I'll ever, ever leave again. That picture that's on the front of your book, I'm remembering now for people who haven't seen it, if you've ever driven by Cleveland or Gary, Indiana or other places that have industry, there's this fire that flies above our city. And, and I thought that your your metaphorical language about that in the book was was just brilliant. Because at the beginning of the book, you see that fire and all you can think of is toxicity, right? Like, Surely humans are not meant to breathe that that air. But our relationship with manufacturing and the people who do it, you know, we we drive cars. We drive things that are made of steel. We we live and and work in high-rises that are made of steel. We we don't think about that fiery plume as um the source of what gives us comfort and, and strength. And, you know, so at the end and toward the end of your book, you're talking about the that fire is a kind of a beacon you know, quote, a testament to what we could create, what we could transform, what we could refine, a vigil for the lives that were built and lost beneath it. I thought that was beautiful. And so it made me think about your ideas of toxicity versus how do you, where do you place steel in the heartland? Are you, what, what should we do about steel versus air? That's a hard question. And it's something that always kind of, um, graded on me when I was down there, knowing that I was kind of part of this um, bigger environmental problem that was going on. And like when I was down there, though, like there is there's something very awesome about what we've been able to do that we can take these, you know, this iron ore out of the ground and make these huge like tens of thousands of pounds, you know, pieces of steel um, and press it and smush it and heat it up. And so like it made me like like I feel like we're so creative as a human species, like we're we we can figure out the problem of how to like have our steel and be environmentally friendly too. It's just a matter of getting there, I think. Um, and I also, I think that government will play a huge role in kind of, um, you know, cutting down on emissions and doing things like that and making sure that companies can't kind of get around these kind of emission standards or can't, you know, you know, just kind of driving that innovation and, and putting, you know, a, a fire beneath the butts of, of um, the big people who, who matter because, you know, so much, so much of, of carbon emissions and things like that come from, from these big industry factories and things like that. So, so yeah, kind of are hopeful for our human innovation, but also like recognizing kind of the need for the government's role in, in, and helping transition into to greener ways of doing things because it's it's expensive to to you know convert a you know a, a steel mill that's been on the banks of the Cuyahoga River since the early 19th century you know people don't want to invest in in making that greener um, unless you know they kind of have to. We often pit corporations and the environment at odds with one another. We have this idea that because you own a business, you couldn't also want clean air and land and water. It is a false binary, though. There are plenty of people who are in industry who who want clean air. And there are plenty of people who breathe clean air who buy cars made of steel. And that I, I am hopeful reading your book that that we will find more ways to walk in harmony and have a respect for both the manufacturing that that provides jobs and roofs overheads and steel for our cars but also the the land and the water around it that needs to breathe. 
you know, and I'm, I'm secretly hopeful that like, as, as millennials kind of take this, like the, you know, the CEO positions and things like that, that they will be instrumental in kind of making those shifts, but we'll see. That's right. Cause uh, my daughter would, would call herself Gen Z, which I guess is the generation after the millennials, but she has a whole list of places we will and will not shop. She's incredibly conscientious about where she buys clothing from and and where she buys sunscreen from. Or, or She talks with her capital and that if it does not align with her beliefs about corporate responsibility and the kind of life and world we want for ourselves, she takes her business elsewhere. And that's very common for her generation. And so you're right. If, if, uh, <laughs> if we don't we don't figure it out. I think the the next generations are definitely breathing down our our uh, our necks to to do right by that. So what's next? What do you do? You have to go and work in like a mine. Like what what's next for you? Is there a rest two in the world? Like I don't know. Are you still coasting along in in I'm in this book and who knows what's next or what what is happening next? No. So I'm working on a proposal for the next thing, and I do think you know I I kind of um dabbled in a bunch of stuff after Rust was done because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I tried some fiction, but my fiction is always just thinly veiled nonfiction. <laughs> and I, I went down a couple avenues and I found one that I think I'll be able to kind of sustain. Yeah, I'm in the proposal parts of that. It's just, it just takes a long time to write a book. <laughs> it does take a long time to write a book. I used to get mad at my kids for reading books so quickly because I'm like, yeah. It took that person years to write it. Why would you read it in a day and a half? Come on. Honor the process, man. Savor it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I wish you well in that. I always do some closing introductory questions. And so um, the camp counselor in me likes to end with some, some icebreakers. So I'm going to give you some multiple choice questions. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or the beach? Mountains. Cake or pie? Cake. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. And are you a risk taker or are you the person who knows where the band-aids are? Uh, definitely the risk taker, yeah. Excellent. Um, and now a few short answers. Who's one of your best teachers? I would say two. Um, one from high school, her name was um, Mrs. Rubin King. She was my high school senior year English teacher, and she really kind of made me fall in love with English um, and kind of want to pursue that. And then in college, Dr. Mary Claire Maroney at John Carroll was very helpful in teaching me kind of how to write and how to think. So, And how about what is a favorite book or movie that you love? Ooh, um, gosh, I really love um, The Autobiography of a Face. I don't know why that, that one popped into my head. Movie... I don't know, but I I don't know like my favorite ones, but I just watched one that was pretty good. It was called like The Finest Hours. It's like a Disney movie, but it was it was pretty good. <laughs> we just watched Cruella on Disney. Oh, I, I want to see that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was the complainer in the back of the couch. I'm like, I don't want to watch that. But it's fantastic. They do a great job. Emma Stone, Emma Thompson, the two Emmas, Dalmatians. Can't go wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Okay, how about a favorite ice cream? I love cherry vanilla. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of my grandma for some reason. <laughs> it's you a very grandma me. flavor. <laughs> you don't remind me of my grandma, but that, that flavor, yes. And then last, if we were to take a picture of you just really happy and doing something you love, what would you be doing? 
Well, I have a horse, so I'd probably be horseback riding or spending time with him or, yeah. Oh, what's your horse's name? Chance. That is a great horse name. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, we'll picture you riding, riding Chance, taking chances on Chance. That's great. Oh, Elise Goldbach, I'm so grateful that you were able to spend time with us here today. I'm I'm grateful for your book. And um, to all of our listeners, I know that um, we're grateful for you. You could have spent this time doing anything. And if we were walking with you on a summer day or if we were folding laundry with you, we're just glad you had us along. However, and wherever you spent this time, thanks for being here. My guest today has been Elise Goldbach. You can pick up her debut book, Rust, A Memoir of Steel and Grit, at any independent bookstore near you. Here in Cleveland, that might mean bopping up to Max Backs, or you could drive out to Oberlin to um, Mindfair Books. We're also a coupon at Mindfair Books, so if you mention Wild Precious Life at the checkout, you get 10% off. We are a coupon. So you can't go wrong with an indie store, and you absolutely cannot go wrong with this book. Thank you for being here, Elise, and thank you, everyone. We're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Until next time, be good to yourself. Be good to one another, and we'll see you again on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.